And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drums? Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie, and we're here to take you on an intersectional feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read it but you can't forget, we've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious talking about your new favorite reads. Hello, I am Harmony. I am Maggie. Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. What are we reading this week, Harmony? We are reading Heartberries by Therese Marie Myatt. This is how Trevor Noah said it when he introduced her, so I am sorry if this is incorrect. This is a memoir a really raw and very short and very intense memoir that documents Myatt's experiences navigating some extreme mental health trauma, I would say, both in a very traditional white-centered, white-focused like hospital system, and also after that experience in outpatient trying to navigate the rest of her life. Um, I would say most prominently after being diagnosed with bipolar 2 disorder. I would say that's accurate. What were your first impressions of this book, Maggie? A little all over the place, I think. It's not a book you enjoy, I think, because it deals with really difficult to read about topics. And I think especially as a non-Indigenous reader, it points a lot into the ways in which every system in our society is built around and serving whiteness, essentially. And everything we kind of think we know about the world is in a lot of ways based around whiteness. And it was really powerful and really difficult. It reminded me of, like, difficult things that I've dealt with in my life in a way that was, frankly, like, kind of triggering a lot of the time. But ultimately, it was, I think, a very cathartic and powerful read. Um, I don't have a lot of coherent thoughts about it for all of these reasons. So we'll see how this goes. What about you? What were your first impressions? I had a very similar reaction to you. Um I think sometimes it was enjoyable to read because it's just very beautifully written. But yeah, I was reading this during like break periods at work and I was like, oh, I have to put this down because if I don't, I'm just going to be an emotional mess and I might cry right here. And that's not generally um, my reaction to, to media in general. I'm not very, I'm not a very sensitive reader sometimes. So I think that it does a really great job of depicting these different experiences. And there's just a lot of it in this book that I think Maggie and I sometimes can't even relate to, even though there are very potent experiences that we can relate to. Um, And Maggie mentioned this, but we didn't really talk about it in our summary. One of the running themes of this book is the fact that the author, the author Mayat is indigenous and she is a part of the seabird island first nation so that is up in canada and eventually throughout most of the book we see her in the u.s but maybe maggie did some more research about this and wants to talk about this a little bit after but um 
just as a primer, the indigenous we we weren't nice to indigenous folks in Canada either. In fact, we were. I think there are some ways in which Canada is still reckoning. Not that the United States isn't, but still reckoning with the way that they have treated their indigenous people in even more gruesome ways. I think than we are because. In Canada in the 1970s, they were still taking Indigenous children away from their mothers and adopting them out into white families. And so then children would grow up and realize that they were Indigenous way afterwards and had this disconnect to their identity, which I think is something from some of the Indigenous authors that we've read here seems pretty relatable across the board. But it's another perspective to be aware of. Do you have any research about that, Maggie? I mean, not that I I think I could distill really succinctly, frankly. I think, though, that if you're interested in this topic in general, I would really suggest the book um, 21 Ways to Understand the Indian Act, which really breaks down, especially as an American reader, I think a lot of the ways in which Indigenous experiences differed in Canada versus the U.S. I'm pretty sure the author of that book is white, but it it's a, an attempt to hold people accountable for the impacts that that act had on Indigenous people in Canada, if that makes sense. And I found it really, really informative. I think also it's an important nuance here to talk about the fact that, uh, I mean... We're all aware of it all the time anyways, or at least I know Harmony and I are. But of course, you know, borders like Canada and the U.S. when it comes to talking about Native populations don't actually, like, (laughs) delineate very much. Not when it comes to, like, in you know, Native culture. So, for example, the Seabird Island Band is considered a Salish people, which is the same as the Indigenous lands that I live on. I live on the lands of the Coast Salish people currently, even though I technically live in Washington State, and she technically lived in British Columbia at the time. So I actually wanted to start off with a little land acknowledgement, because land acknowledgements are really one of, I think, the easiest and most basic ways to honor Indigenous people. So uh, I thank and honor the Coast Salish people who have stewarded the land that I currently reside on um, throughout the centuries from time immemorial to now. And that's my land acknowledgement. I think Harmony's looking up who lives, whose land she lives on right now. Uh, Well, I think that this, well, no, I think that this also points to the fact that depending on where you live in the U S it can be really relatively simple to figure out whose land you live on. Um, or it can be extremely difficult. It's not well documented in many places. And because I live in Washington State specifically, there's a lot of, I would say, performative activism sometimes about the fact that there's still large portions of Indigenous populations that live in our area. So people try to, you know, acknowledge them. (laughs) The same thing happens here, and I've heard people do it. What I'm seeing here is that the majority of the people who lived on this land were Lenape is one of the pronunciations for it. And the other pronunciation, just so that we're covering our bases, is Lenape. So I think and honor the Lenape people. And thank you for letting me live here. I guess you didn't really let me. And I'm sorry that we 
came and stole your land. Yeah. It's nice and cheerful. Yeah, so a lot of this book is centered around... I mean, this in, in 124 pages, this book covers a lot of fucking ground. So, like, it's kind of hard to figure out some of the main themes almost sometimes. But I would say that one of the main themes that this book sort of deals with in a trifecta, it's almost like a, a an overlapping Venn diagram in three ways about, like, female feminine experience overlapping with native experience occasionally overlapping but also occasionally verse like white experience and how all three of those things play together and don't play together and the spaces in which Mayotte is keenly aware of the fact that she's female first of all and then also keenly aware of the fact that she's native first of all um and so a lot of this book is centered around the idea of telling her story precisely for that reason and making sure that she's heard. And it's not even just in the sense of like, I'm telling my story. It's in the sense that she talks about weaponizing her story. She talks about her story as inherent power. And at her lowest moments, she talks about the fact that her story is no longer medicine and the story of her culture and her people no longer feels like medicine. And that's when she goes to check in to a psychiatric unit, essentially, is when she's feeling like that. But the ultimate like culmination of this feeling happens on page 119. I have so many passages I could read about this theme, but I'll just stick with this one for right now. Today, in front of a slew of white authors during a fellowship with a drink in my hand, I said that I was untouchable. There was a gasp and maybe it was a hundred years of work for my name to arrive here, where I can name my pain so well that people are afraid of the consequences and the power. And this was uh, during her master's degree journey and during her, I think during like while she was writing her just published this book. And she wrote it specifically for that power, to take and keep that power for herself. And that's a, a running theme throughout the memoir, is that she's keenly aware of the fact that she's writing something that gives her power and agency simply by speaking up. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm glad you pulled out that passage, because as soon as you said that, that was the passage that I was thinking about. Um one of the running themes throughout this book is something that she names as Indian pain. And when we say Indian just throughout, so everyone's clear, we're talking about American Indians because many indigenous people refer to themselves as Indians. And that's how Maya refers to herself throughout the book. Yeah. So she talks about this Indian pain and the Indian pain is tied into stories with her. And I wonder if that's all related to the form that this book takes, Maggie. Yeah. Because this this book is written as though, for the majority of it, it sounds like it's written to her main love interest throughout the her book. Her husband, yeah. Yeah. And then eventually, at the very end, from that passage that Maggie just re read, it's written to her mother. And I want to know how that relates, you think? This idea of naming pain, but naming it in the form of letters almost. Like, why do you think she chose to do that? Well, I think that she was given this journal as 
initially a way to like write through the trauma. It was a, it was a therapy tool. And I think that a lot of what she was doing was writing to people who she didn't understand her relationship with all the time. Her second, her current husband, Casey is written to throughout most of this book because the beginning of their relationship has a very tumultuous start to say the least in which he is, I would say, emotionally unkind to her and unavailable the majority of the time. And she calls him out on this and calls him out on the gaslighting. But because of a lot of the things that she's gone through and the struggles that she has, she is also abusive back to him in some ways. And so she's like- In some very big ways. In some very big ways. So she spends a lot of time writing this letter to like try and untangle their relationship And then she also spends a lot of time reflecting on her relationship with her parents and the fact that her mother felt like a paradox almost. That seemed to be how she was described constantly throughout in the sense that like her mother is this activist social worker who, you know, works largely with prisoners, feels a lot of empathy with prisoners, befriends prisoners, who does a lot of good in the community And yet, as a child, Therese and her sibling find themselves occasionally in foster care and how those things can be hard to reconcile with themselves, uh, at the very least from the outside perspective. Maya, in the middle of the story, says that she doesn't find that odd at all because it was just her experience and what was happening. Um, But then there's also her mother that, in private, feels like a nihilist almost and is really bleak about the world so she's like writing letters to people who she doesn't understand almost and doesn't understand how the way they've all treated each other affects her i think but also i think it starts to a certain extent with this form right at the beginning of the book when she says my story was maltreated the words were too wrong and ugly to speak i tried to tell someone my story but he thought it was a hustle he marked it as solicitation The man took me shopping with his pity. I was silenced by charity like so many Indians. I kept my hand out. My story became the hustle. Women asked me what my endgame was. I hadn't thought about it. I considered marrying one of the men and sitting with my winnings, but I was too smart to sit. I took their money and went to school. I was hungry and took more. When I gained the faculty to speak my story, I realized I had given men too much. So I think that part of this letter writing process is her trying to give herself back something. It starts off by the fact that she's telling her story almost for others and gauging their reactions and how her reactions end up relating to like her and her life. But in the end, she's telling the story so that she can work through stuff herself and understand things about her mother and her and her siblings and and her husband that she didn't get before. I'm sorry, that was probably a little bit repetitive. I had to talk my way into understanding my point. No, that's okay. I I really appreciate that. I hadn't really picked up, I guess, as much on the paradox issue because my reading of this book was like, I think, I think I was less able to think about this book abstractly. And I was more focused on the idea of like, okay, she has this relationship with her mother. She has this relationship with her father, but she's trying to humanize both. And that was something else she tried to do with her mother through writing. But I really like that you brought that paradox out because you're right. She, I think in the beginning, doesn't really feel as though she knows how to feel about her relationships with these people in her life. 
And the big thing about her mother, too, is that her mother, even though she is this great activist, um, receives fame for a hot second, but then is like footnoted in a man's story. And so there's this whole process of trying to reclaim. And I think that relates really well from my granted not very great understanding of the Indigenous experience as she describes it in the book of not having that culture of like having it erased and then having pain handed down to you and then handing that pain down to your children. Yeah, I don't know. And this whole book is, is hard because it's so complicated. Like Maggie just mentioned this idea of her relationship that she's still currently in and how incredibly abusive it was and unhealthy at times in both sides. But when we read this book, like the abuse that she commits really does for me become more of a footnote because I get to see her as a whole human. Yeah, I don't know. That's not very eloquent, but those are all the connections I I related to what you said. (laughs) No, I think that, I mean... Here, I, I guess that this is always the thing with memoirs, right? Like, this isn't a story where there's anything neat to tie it to. We're watching the author deal with, like, these real humans and experiences and trying to untangle them as the reader, I think, just as she's trying to figure them out and pick them apart through writing. I do think it's interesting, though, what you said about the fact that her abuse becomes a footnote, because it does... But I don't think, or the the abuse she dishes out, I, I guess, yeah. um, which is interesting because I she doesn't shy away from it, right? No, she it takes just... accountability for it sometimes, at the very least. Like you know, later there's a lot of reflection about it, but because we see her as a whole person, because we see this beginning, middle, and end in this book, it it just it fits into the mosaic differently. And I think that ends up being especially true when you brought up the idea of essentially generational trauma, which Maya is unpacking here, I think in two different ways. The first just being the, you know, I guess generalized, although that's not really the connotation of the word I mean, generational trauma of being um, an Indian woman in a modern society where everything is built upon whiteness. But then also she spends a good deal of time thinking about the fact that in some ways her mother was like a good Indian woman who did a lot of cultural things, who really believed intensely in the spirituality of the Seabird Island band, who went to talk to the river, who she imagined if she had been born centuries ago would have been one of those people who was like up at daybreak, really did their thing. And then she compares the almost like the ancestry that she the author came down from as being like the side of the family that was maybe a little bit lazy and and didn't do everything to a T and probably arguably potentially had mental illnesses too I think that that's the connection that Mayotte's trying to draw sometimes when she talks about that so she's got these two different ideas of generational trauma coming together as well that I don't think the memoir ever super unpacks because how the fuck do you unpack that as a human living in this society? Um, Yeah. 
I mean, I think she tries to unpack part of it by giving people a definition. And I think that the the definition that she's trying to get at in this book is is the book itself, right? Like we're thinking of her as something else. And she, at least, seems to believe that the outside world views her as, and the word she uses is squaw. And that's something she repeats throughout the book, this idea of I am a squaw, which to me really seemed to evoke this idea of like monstrosity, but also savagery and relates probably a little bit to her mental illness. But like this idea of having this pain, this unwieldy pain that other people can't relate to and therefore being penalized for it and and being othered. And she's taking that back by being like, no, this is this is my story. I am this full person. And she does that with her father as well, who we learn not initially, but we learn after being introduced to him that he sexually assaulted her. But she like very carefully doesn't give us that upfront, I think, because it she doesn't, it's not the defining factor. Like it's a thing that happened and that needs to be acknowledged and something that affected her and that wasn't okay. But there was also more to her father. And I think that there's, I know for me, one of the reasons this book is healing is that idea that like, we are not defined by the worst of ourselves. Because I think for people who suffer from mental illnesses, for mentally ill women, for just people in general, people who do commit abuse, like we're so keen as a society to be like, you did this wrong thing. You were awful, therefore, forever. And that's not a great way to live life because then the person never gets the chance to reform. (laughs) And it's also just not fair because none of us are perfect. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that two things you said there. The first was the, was the, was the use of the word squaw. She does use it occasionally throughout the book, but it comes to a culmination in one of the last chapters where she's talking about her at like the depths of, feeling terrible in her mental illness. She's pregnant at the time, so she cannot take her mood stabilizers. And to say the very least, it throws her for a goddamn loop. Um, She really struggles during that period to the point where she fairly considers a late-term abortion because she feels like she's losing her mind and just completely out of control in a way that she hadn't been in a long time. And she talks about the fact that she's almost not worried about it, but she feels like almost all of the worst Indian stereotypes because of that. Um, And she's got this obsession throughout the book between this idea of like dirty and clean and things like that. I think the second thing you said that was interesting too is I agree. I think that the not letting us know about the father has two purposes. The first, because she does she simultaneously manages to humanize him and hold him accountable. I think she doesn't shy away from the fact that he was a terrible and an abusive father, but she also puts him into some context just as she does with her mother. Um, But also there's the fact that it was a truth about herself that was buried so deep. It took her years and years and years to come to, to, accept and talk about the fact that this is what happened to her there's a point I would say two-thirds of the way through the book where she recounts trying to talk to her mother about it and her mother essentially says 
I put you in two diapers. Did he ever hurt you? You know, trying to say that she was attempting to protect her daughter, that she, that she was trying to put like physical barriers up. And at the time, Mayotte says no. But then a couple chapters later, we come to the realization that he did hurt her. And she says it first to Casey. And it's almost like this breaking open point in the story where there's, I think, some, it almost feels like the last of the barriers falls for her. And it's a way, she does it in a way that it's not gratifying for the reader. Because there's essentially two sentences about the entire experience. She makes it very clear that it's not what defines her. But then simultaneously, there is a catharsis in the sense that it's like, okay, we've acknowledged a truth about a horrific thing in the past. And now we can start building forward almost, which I think is almost why the book ends where it does, because it, it that's one of the revelations it, it ends with. Um, and from there, she's able to start, I think, you know, building forward in a different way, which isn't to say that she wasn't making progress before or anything, right? Like, this book, I think, is very much about the roller coaster that mental illness can and does take you on when you suffer with things like suicidal ideation, when you suffer with things like self-harm, when you, you suffer with bipolar 2, potentially. And when you're a survivor of trauma. Yeah, when you're a survivor of trauma in the many different ways that trauma can come and affect a person. So... I don't know that I've got anything more insightful to add to what you said, but I, I do think it serves this like dual purpose of also taking the reader on the ride in the sense that there are truths about ourselves sometimes that feel so, so much like an open wound that our minds block it out. And we're like, nope, we can't acknowledge that right now. We can't deal with that right now. And sometimes that happens and it's okay if you need to protect yourself, but for Mayotte, at the very least, I think part of what you get at this book is that eventually learning to talk about this story helps her in her healing process. I want to take a little detour and talk a little bit about something you mentioned towards the beginning of this episode, which was like this concept of whiteness that she's constantly coming up against. And I think that we see that played out throughout her relationship with Casey, both because from her depiction of the relationship, it sounds like he fetishizes her a little bit or she fears that he fetishizes her a little bit because Casey's white. But also then because many of the women that he chooses to sleep with while they're in a relationship or on a break happen to also be white. So there's this whole inner dialogue that she has between like like comparing herself and white women that I personally found really interesting as a white woman. And to me, it kind of spoke of how performative femininity is and how much it sucks to not fit into the mold of like being womanly, but how womanliness is coded in our current society at the very least with whiteness. And I don't know. I just don't think that anyone truly can fit into like this mold of woman. I don't, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about that? I think that that was, yeah, that was a really interesting aspect of, of the story. I think that part of this also ties into Mayotte makes reference at least three times throughout the book, if not more to the fact that white people treat their dogs more like humans than they do 
indigenous people, Indian people. And I think that for me, one of those moments that really stuck out when she was having this moment of panic, but about who he was with and what they were doing at this moment where their relationship has very little definition uh, and boundaries are very unclear to say the least is she thinks that this blonde lady probably also treats her dog like a person and so much of what she comes up against with whiteness in this book is the fact that I think occasionally it feels like the cultural divide is so deep that how could one understand and empathize what they're they want or what they're looking for they being I think white people they like us me and harmony because we view or treat generally speaking indigenous people like animals still like savages in the worst connotations of the word and I think that a lot of that comparison comes out in her fears about what's happening with Casey and other women because you know this other woman that he's with right now probably also treats her dog like a person so it's simultaneously like how am I being treated in comparison to this? The answer is fucking shit, first of all. Yeah. But then also the sense that it's like we've got these two white people who also have this like ideology about animals and the fact that we treat dogs like kids and like babies and stuff. And like that's a cultural thing. That's both a really barbed criticism, but also just a thing about white people and being obsessed with dogs and treating them extremely well. I think also places that she contends with whiteness in a similar way are when she's actually inpatient at the hospital. She talks about a moment in group therapy where it starts out rocky for her. On page 28, it says, I go to group therapy. It is quite intense because holy shit, there are a lot of women in the group who can articulate why they are here. So it starts out that way, which... Side note, Maya is occasionally very funny in this book. She's got this real dry, sharp humor that's brilliant. But then it ends with this session, the next page, saying, Some children are taught self-esteem from a young age, she said. Oh, I said. There's a girl with tight, great braids who posts up against the wall at group therapy. When Terry asks her to sit down, she says she doesn't want to. She says that she has to be here for seven full days, no matter if she behaves or not. Terry explains self-esteem and its function, and I blame my mother for not saying these things. My mother wasn't big on esteem for herself, let alone trying to foster that in me. I think self-esteem is a white invention to further separate one person from another. It asks people to assess their values and implies people have worth. It seems like identity capitalism. So there's also this place in which whiteness is so ingrained into even services that I think society kind of at large sometimes thinks about as being positive, like therapy, like places where you can go to get services to help you feel better. But in reality, for my aunt, she's sitting there like, what the fuck are you talking about, you know? That's really, really interesting. I think I have a few thoughts. I don't know how well I'm going to articulate them. Um, So that idea of self-esteem as like identity capitalism, I really loved that. I don't know how to feel about it because I think personally, I'm so very ingrained in my culture that like 
I haven't had a chance to unpack the problems there. Um, and for me, this idea of self-esteem has been really healing, but I'm also a part of a very individualistic culture and that's that's a part of it. But I think that that idea, like that sentiment kind of points to the fact that these structures were maintained by white people. And so these ideas of healing are already kind of fucked up because and already problematic because we're not taking the bigger structural problems. And I think that kind of relates a little bit to what you were saying about dogs, because as you were saying that, and I, it's not a very nice comparison, but like the, the truth is, yeah, we treat our dogs well, but we also don't. There are so many dogs that die in shelters, but also like we go to breeders to get these special dogs and we breed dogs to the point where they have horrible dysfunctions because we think it's cute. And that's like, that's the history of, of dog ownership. We, you know, befriended dogs or whatever, but then we, we really just domesticated them and essentially enslaved them and then bred them to have all of these health problems so that they could better serve us. So like, I don't know, that being a white thing makes very, like that makes a lot of sense to me because the whole structure of like our relationship with dogs, I'm sorry, I know you're a dog owner, Maggie, but <laughs> there's nothing wrong with being a dog owner. I'm not saying that necessarily, but like the whole structure is problematic and fucked up. It's us treating this other animal poorly for our own purposes. And we love them so much because we bred them to be subservient to us. And, and indigenous people still fall below that. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, because we didn't breed them. I mean, we might have tried to. We definitely tried to in various ways, but like they're their own people. They're humans. They're human beings. And you can't ever fully control human beings. Yeah. I think to pull it back just a little bit, although I, I agree with you, you're okay. <laughs> To me, part of this really spoke to, so while I was doing research for this episode, I was doing research specifically about, like, mental health issues in Aboriginal communities in Canada, which sounds very specific. And I came across this Canadian website called heretohelp.bc.ca. Sorry, I'm about to call you out. And it, and it talks about all of, all of this, and it says, um... It's well known that Aboriginal people of Canada face a unique set of mental health challenges. First sentence. Scroll down a little bit more. In spite of this, there are serious concerns about mental health and social ills, such as substance abuse, addiction, suicide, and violence among Aboriginal people and communities. The imposition of European culture and the loss of an Indigenous culture, lifestyle, and self-determination is seen as a major cause of health and social problems in the population. Which, like, as a sentence is true, I think that all of that is dealt with and unpacked in this book. But, you know, this is an official government website here. What we what it doesn't seem to actually contend with and what I think that we see in this book here is the fact that the systems that we create to help people solve and work through these problems are still inherently based and entrenched in whiteness, not in indigenous communities. And so we're constantly seeing this tension of it, it's almost like the macroist version of the good white people, right? To say, we know we caused this problem. We're doing X, Y, and Z to help fix this. And it's like, well. But that doesn't fully fix the problem because you're not going back and like recreating the structure. Like we're still building upon the problematic structures. And I think the idea of abolition here is probably really useful for those that don't know. 
So abolition is generally referred to in prison reform. And it's generally used by Black communities. But there are various ways that you can have abolitionist thinking, again, still generally used by Black communities. But the idea is that you are overturning the structure. You're, it, it, the acts that you are doing are supposed to be inherently against that structure rather than, I don't know, tolerance, where you kind of accept it and you're like, this is okay. I'm just going to accept you. That's not, that's not good enough. You need to actually do something to upheave the structure because the structure in place is inherently oppressive. Yeah. And that I think really relates to mental health when you don't involve communities in treatment, which again, not to call out that website, I didn't do a deep enough dive to know whether or not they like do that kind of work or anything. It was more just that was like on their opening page. And it really struck to me the fact that Maya didn't seem to get any sort of like her experiences getting healing in Indigenous and white spaces were very separate and very different. And as I said, the reason she ends up in this hospital is because she feels like the stories, the healing that she was getting was no longer a medicine for her. And I don't know what to do with all of this, except for just like wanting to scream out and be like, we need to do better by (laughs) American Indians. But there is just such a disconnect, I think, between taking ownership in white spaces and being like, yeah, you know, we understand that we caused your general community so much trauma that we've (laughs) given you hosts of, you know, social problems many years down that are direct results of our actions, but we're still going to try and use our own methodologies in which to help you fix this. That's interesting. So in relation to that, I'm wondering what like some better alternatives would be. When Maggie's talking about my experiences of healing, she's talking about what's going on at her reservation. And that's primarily like, old Indian traditions being passed down. Uh, There are healers going on. Um, But sometimes medicine works regardless of the culture it comes from. Like, let's take yoga, for instance. There have been so many positive research from, from the Western world in, in terms of how yoga practice works. And that's an ancient Indian tradition. Indians from India, not Indians, Native Americans. And so like that can be turned into a medicine, even though I know that now it's super duper appropriated. So I'm wondering if it would have been, if, if it would be useful for programs looking to hold themselves accountable, but also to upheave some of these oppressive structures to maybe educate, to like grant fund some of the indigenous healers out there and be like, hey, this is something that we know works. Yeah, I don't know. That's just my idea. Like, how does one help in the best way that they know how without erasing a culture? And also, how do we do it while trying to stand up to our oppressive cultures, you know? Yeah, I feel like I genuinely don't know enough about this topic to have any kind of informed opinion on it, frankly. I think especially fed into the fact that my experiences with mental health institutions, even as a white lady, have been also extremely negative, either through like direct experience or 
watching a, a close friend of mine tackle very similar experiences that my aunt does in the story. And I think that sometimes when we think about Western, white Western mental health practices, it just feels like we're so off base occasionally in all senses that my answer is we've got to rip it down completely and start it all over. But that's coming from a biased and angry place. So I don't think I really have any like (laughs) smart thoughts about that, except to say that you have to work with communities to do anything. Uh, and that sometimes mean you have to you have to start as macros. The fact that if you want to treat women, you have to talk to actual women. And when I say and when I say actual, I mean all women of all, of all identities, trans, non-binary. I just mean you got to talk to the you got to talk to people who identify as ladies. And getting as macro is the fact that you've got to step back and and make room for individual cultures. Um, and also understand, I think, especially with indigenous people, that. There are thousands of separate nations out there who all have their own separate cultures and their own way of doing things and their own ideas of healing. And one, you know, there's not going to be any one right answer that's going to fit everyone. Yeah, that's a good point. We haven't really talked about mental health in terms of how she's treated beyond the fact that like self-esteem exists. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because you're right, like, I was thinking about it and I was like, I don't really know of any mental health solutions that certainly work. I mean, as an ADHD person, I know that a lot of people like me take drugs and that seems to work for them. It doesn't work for me though. And so like, I never feel like I've gotten real great mental health counseling. And I think a lot of people just end up not even utilizing it because it doesn't work and it is so limited and it's expensive. But and then, scary, I think, a lot scary. of the time. Yeah. So a lot of people just end up giving up, I think, on trying to get any sort of help. Yeah, yeah. I think that's something interesting about the, to, I guess, to bring it back to the text, because we got kind of abstract there. Two things stick out to me about sort of the question you just posed. I think the first being that Maya, in the end, seems to end up blending, you know, sort of as what we think of as very, like, traditional Uh, Western medicine with more indigenous practices as well for healing in the sense that she doesn't take medication and it's implied at the very least that it works pretty well for her because when she goes off of it, when she gets pregnant, as we said before, shit goes off the rails. Um, And, but also it comes back to a lot of like healing storytelling and she talks a lot about through not to hammer in the story thing too much, but she also talks a lot about the fact that stories to her are like the key to her indigenous culture at the very least, to being a Seabird Island band person and how Indian stories carry multitudes of weight and meaning and healing. So she's got these two things coming together in a way that seems to work pretty well for her. I think that when we talk about how she's treated in the system, there's a couple things that stick out to me. The first being that all the women she encounters there are really trying to manipulate the system so that they can get out in many ways. Like they talk about the fact that like the women she's with are like, hey, you shouldn't watch the TV too much because they record that. And you should talk to the other woman because that looks good. And part of the reason we all color all the fucking time is because that looks good and things like that. And she talks about the fact that she reads a bit too 
Um, and she seems to form some sort of bond and solidarity with them. Uh, for example, when Casey eventually comes to visit her, he she asks him to bring a woman named Patricia Abra because she didn't have one in the facility. And she talks about the fact that that was like a big thing for Patricia, this act of kindness that she does. Um, but then also later, after she's been out for a while, she's she's an outpatient, etc. She does talk about the fact that she learned a lot of coping mechanisms while she was inpatient, but they're coping mechanisms that work for the external world and not the internal world. And not to bring it all back to like whiteness and race again, but I think it's inevitable. Much of the external world is spaces where she's operating in you know, like white society and white culture, even if a lot of them are indigenous spaces, like, you know, the the school she goes to for her MFA is the Institution of American Indian Arts. So like you would assume, I would hope, please God, that that's a primarily indigenous space, but it's still working within a larger college that I'm willing to bet is largely a white space. So she talks about the fact that even when she's off her medications, when she's feeling really unhinged, she can still function. She's got the coping mechanisms to go to work every day, to teach her classes, to get great grades in her grad school, to do all of that. It's when she comes back to her, her internal life um, that those coping mechanisms fail. And those coping mechanisms don't help her be a good mother. And there's moments where she points out when she was a really bad mother, uh, or at least feels that way. And moments where she talks about the fact that those coping mechanisms don't talk, don't stop her from wanting to commit suicide or, or wanting to and or actively hurting herself and doesn't help her in her relationship with Casey, which at this point is still pretty rocky, even though she's pregnant with his kid and they're about to get married. Um, so I think that it's interesting to me that the coping me mechanism she learns in this white Western space help her in other primarily white Western spaces. But when she has to come back to herself, uh, that's where they fail her. I don't know if that was necessarily what she was trying to get at. like, But the external versus internal world thing really stuck out to me when she was talking about her process and recovery. No, I think that's really potent. I think that the text almost kind of directly addresses that because when she starts, um, when she gets out, initially and starts like trying to date Casey again her whole goal is to try and appear normal because she thinks that Casey broke up with her and this could be true I don't know because we're only really getting her perspective she thinks that Casey broke up with her because she was too crazy essentially because she was like showing her mental illness too much and so she really hides it from him initially and she even like compares herself to white like that's where a lot of the comparisons to white women come from it's this idea that like she's trying to appear more like a white woman more controlled yeah i think that this whole conversation gets complicated again when we talk about the fact that this is a moment where she's not coping with her mental illness very well no her, bipo her bipolar too feels very out of control it is out of control um and but she does win Casey back. So, like, in a way, she is, that is, like, an out sector. Like, by doing that, she wins his love back. No, no, no. It's totally true. I'm just saying, like, I think that there's also just, like, a there's always going to be a grain of salt, I think, to what she still, like, believes and compares about herself in some of those cases versus 
what she was thinking and feeling then. I think that an interesting question she poses also about winning Casey back is the fact that she is pregnant, right? So she, a lot of the other insecurity she feels is, would we even be together right now if I wasn't having your kid, essentially? Um, so I don't know. There's just, there's a lot of confusing things happen here, which is probably why it's a memoir, because you write memoirs about lots of confusing things that happen in your life. <laughs> That's very true. Yeah. I don't even... I do- Oh, sorry. Oh, no. I was just going to say, I think I've got a quote that kind of supports this, though. Um, It's early on in the book. It's on page 20. It's when she's checking herself into this facility. She says, um, she told me there was a better solution to pain and that she'd seen it herself. She asked me to stay for five days. I'd be out two days before Christmas. I had already bought my son's gifts. I asked her if I could write. She said yes. I asked her if I would be out before Christmas for sure. She said yes. Do this program for you, she said. The forms made me feel big. My signature mattered. I was signing a new treaty. That line to me really said so much about like her relationship with this place and how she handles her mental illness. And I think also in some ways what she expects and doesn't expect for this, from this. Because on the one hand, a treaty is a really big momentous contract right between two sovereign nations but on the other hand historically treaties have been broken constantly and not honored and it's a huge struggle today for many native nations to get especially the U.S. government I don't know about Canada I would assume probably the same um, to get recognition of treaties that were signed were ratified uh, and then thrown away willy-nilly so I think it shows the fact that like this is big and momentous and could be great for her But also, you know, historically, treaties can go either way to a certain extent because white people can't hold up their end of the contract. Or they can. They just don't want to because they don't respect anyone but themselves. And by they, I mean us. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's very potent. I don't think I have anything to add to that. This book is just, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot of a book. Is there anything else you want to talk about with this book? I think there's more we could say. Do you want to talk about the relationship with like motherhood at all? Or do we want to leave it where we've left it? It's been a while since I've read this book, but I think, I don't think I have much to unpack with the relationship with motherhood um, that we haven't already unpacked by talking about her mother But I guess it is notable to say that, like, she also struggles with motherhood because she she loves her sons and one is taken away from her. And it's hard to take care of another human when you don't feel like you yourself are on solid ground. Um, I think that's like I don't really have much else to say about the matter, though. Do you? Uh, nah, not 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 anything that's coming directly to my mind. I think when I originally wrote my notes, I, I had more to say, but then they're very very vague notes, and that's it. <laughs> but yeah, I think that was I think that's most of what I wanted to talk about. Oh, I guess from a feminist perspective, it's worth noting that um, she's got a lot of anger towards men <laughs> as a as an entity. She. I think rightfully holds a lot of men accountable for 
their actions and just kind of being shitty towards women. And she talks about the fact that men like this killed my mother and how at the beginning of the book, she has a really flippant attitude towards men, generally speaking. She specifically is grooming them and wants things out of them. And then part of the reason she ends up so hung up on Casey is because she can't do that with him and he doesn't take it. Um, But then also there is a weird way in which her relationship with Casey, with this man and heartbreak and her mental illness all end up in this weird trifecta that get kind of brought together. Like even when she enters the hospital, somebody says she looks heartbroken and Mayotte says, yep, that's pretty much it. I'm heartbroken because they had just broken up for, I think the first time sort of permanently in quotes. And she spends a lot of time talking about the fact that this heartbreak is a lot of what destabilizes her. And I don't think I have a ton of deep things to say about that, but I do think it's worth noting that Mayot does spend a decent amount of this book really directly addressing issues between like the feminine female experience and her experience with men. I think that's very potent. I think that that was that was one of the parts of the book that I could re- most relate to. I think that it's not an accident that this book was addressed to Casey and then ended up being addressed to her mother, right? And that like the three main figures in this book are Casey, her mother, and then also her father, right? I think when you are dealing with unhealth, like when you grow up in a situation that is unhealthy, you're more likely, and I I believe there's statistical evidence for this. Uh, but anecdotally, I can tell you that this is like what I've experienced and also people I know have experienced. You're more likely to put more of your self-worth, I think, into relationships. And I mean, relationships in of themselves are like actual drugs for your brain. So <laughs> if you already have a mental illness, right, usually that has to do a lot with hormones and um if something goes awry with that like those happy hormones that you're feeling it makes a lot of sense that you're going to have some sort of emotional breakdown when that goes away um and i think too her relationship with casey it just it it's difficult it's a difficult relationship because it starts off when she is his student and it just kind of can continues to have unfair power dynamics even when she asserts power in an unfair way which is when she punches him um or maybe like looks through his texts that's also abusive behavior i would say but the punching thing is really when it like the nail hits the head it seems from her perspective that casey does view her as being unstable and does view her unfairly because of that, right? Because her initial interactions with her mental health and Casey don't seem abusive on her part. They just seem like she is struggling and he can't handle that. And he also seems to make her feel bad for being more of a person, for like not being as well controlled as these other women in his life. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So I think that that whole reflection on femininity and relationships has a lot to do with 
the the race aspect that we've already touched on with like the white woman being controlled and being like the best partner. Um, But it also has to do with this idea that like, generally speaking, I think that people in heterosexual relationships, female identifying people have trouble in their relationships because the expectation is that they're going to be there to serve men and that they're going to be whatever the man wants them to be. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Okay. Do we have anything else we want to talk about? No. Do you think this was a feminist book? I do. I think this was a really feminist book and it's great. And I love it. I agree. Uh, What's our homework this week? So I kind of have been really busy with schoolwork and I stepped away from an issue that really bothered me initially a few weeks ago, which was in Rochester, New York, a nine-year-old was pepper sprayed. And I've made like some calls for that. The officers, the last thing I'm seeing have been suspended, but they really need to be fired. (laughs) Initially, their names weren't even released. And there's like video of this happening. And it's just, it's really not okay. So my homework is going to be to put some more effort towards trying to right this wrong beyond what I've already done because I haven't really been able to put as much effort as I would like into it. What about you, Maggie? I think that mine is going to be about looking into some of the stuff I realized that I just don't know about how the mental health system works and is and just in, especially in my area, which has a pretty sizable indigenous population and trying to figure out who's doing work to, you know, make the system more just so that I can support them. Because reading this book, I realized that so much of my knowledge about mental health comes from my own like experiences within that system that I assumed I knew more about how it worked than I actually did. So I want to start, I, I got to go back a little bit and like reset how I think about some of these topics, you know? That makes sense. That's good homework. Thanks. What you reading? What am I reading? Oh, okay. So I um, finally, I so I didn't ever get to finish Gods of Jade and Shadow because the library took it back, but I finally got it back today. It was quite a wait. And so I'm, I'm finally reading that again. And then I started the Bridgerton series by Julia Quinn. There is a Netflix oh show about it. Maggie has faces. Well, wait, so are the books problematic? Because I know that there's, they are. Have you read them? I have been considering watching the show. So I went and watched some own voices reviews about what was going on in the books because there was this whole, there's been this whole series about comparing the book to the TV show. And the book is in some ways worse than the TV show in some ways better. There's some different problematic things happening from what I understand. So I'll be interested to hear your take on it. Okay. Well, I'm excited for that, I guess. I don't know. It's hard reading like things like romance novels right now for me because I read so many. The books I've been reading, even the books for fun, are generally pretty good about inclusivity. And I don't think that this book series really has that at all because it's a you know a regency romance um so yeah I don't know but we'll see I'm like not it's not I'm not not enjoying it though like it's a fun fluffy read so what about you Maggie what are you reading 
I am reading The Year of the Witching by Alexis Henderson, which... Oh, I want to read that! <laughs> ...is a fucking great book. <laughs> uh, I'm, like, 100 pages from the end. I actually think it might be a contender for the podcast next season because, I mean, it's a horror novel, so it, it's scary, don't get me wrong, and a lot of the horror elements are, like... I mean, like, that's what it's up to. But so far, at the very least, it's definitely got a feminist agenda, so I want to see if that keeps up until the end, because I don't think there's a ton of feminist horror novels out there. I know that the genre itself is moving towards, you know, being more inclusive. I think like lots of publishing aspects are, but this is one of the first ones that I've seen that's really like put feminism at the first and foremost. I'm really enjoying it. It's, it's so gripping that it was one of those books where all day today where I was working, I was like, I just want to be like reading this fucking book right now. <laughs> I understand that feeling. <laughs> All right. Um, what are we talking about next week, Maggie? Uh, we are talking about Girls Burn Brighter by Shoba Rayo. We're only reading the first half of the book. So I'll post on Twitter or something what that page number is. Okay, good, good, good. So we'll know the page number. I need to know the page number. <laughs> All right. Is that all, folks? That's all, folks. Bye. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support to this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to medium.com slash rebel dash girls dash book dash club and clicking read along. You can follow us at RGBC Pod on Instagram at Rebel Girls Book Club, on Facebook at Rebel Girls Book One, on Twitter, and you can email us at Rebel Girls Book Club at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.